Hi, sweet ladies. You are listening to Bold Is, a women's ministry podcast with the goal of helping you learn the Bible verse by verse. This season, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. I'm sure you've noticed, but it's been a minute since our last podcast. Our team has shrunk over the past few months, but the Bold Movement has grown. We are now ministering to 30,000 women worldwide in 77 countries. God is moving in a powerful and mighty way, and I believe he is teaching us to trust him more. So with that being said, I think we're back on track to get everything out to you all. One more thing before we get into Mark. I want to let you know that everything we make is 100% free. If you believe in what we are doing and would like to consider helping support our ministry, would you pray about joining us as a sponsor? We would love for you to subscribe to our Patreon, which is a community of folks just like you, with plans ranging from $1 a month to $25 a month. Your monetary donations gives you access to discounts on our merchandise, additional resources on our website, and early access to all of our content. With your support, you are ensuring that we can effectively deliver daily content to help women better understand the Bible, which in turn creates disciples who impact the kingdom in greater ways. If you cannot afford to help, we ask that you send us some love by praying for our ministry. Okay, friends, are you ready to study Mark 7? You are listening to Bold Is, a ministry podcast training women how to handle the Word of God. Buckle up, sis. It's about to get real. Here's your host, Megan Rawlings. If you're new here, welcome to the podcast. Our goal is to walk you through scripture verse by verse. So we will read a section of the passage and then we'll try to break it down for you. Just an FYI, it is easy to take scripture out of context, so make sure when you're studying, you read before the section and after to ensure you are reading it within the correct frame that the original author intended. Ladies, let's get started. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. This is the word of God, and it is profitable for you. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition! For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So here is the funny thing about this. The Pharisees are lovers of scripture, just like many Christians. However, in this incident, they place the traditions of elders as equal to scripture. They even tell on themselves by saying, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
Ironically, in so doing, they were actively living in a sinful state and Jesus calls them out for it. Something I want you all to hear was said in a commentary by D.A. Carson. If tradition contradicts scripture, it must go, no matter how much loved. Are you willing to lay down beloved traditions that are hindering you from evangelizing at full capacity or ones that compromise the truth of scripture? Okay, let's move on to verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they that there defile were a person. Jews who were dying. I want you to consider something. Killed and murdered Jesus is because they would not eat unclean here. foods. Why? So, N.T. Wright says, Jesus had to use parables, not only here, but on many other occasions. It was the only way he could say some of the most devastating things he wanted to say. If you're trying to tell your own world that it's going the wrong way, that its heroes fought for the wrong cause, and its martyrs died in the wrong ditch, you'll be careful how you do it. It's got to be cryptic. Jesus is not saying that the physical food you put in your body is okay and what happens in the bathroom is what determines if you are defiled or not. He is talking about the heart. And as I have said in other episodes of the podcast, when we talk about the heart, we really mean the mind. So your thoughts, which ultimately lead to actions, are what determines if you are tainted. Wright goes on to say, The purity laws he's suggesting point to the real need of humans for a deeper purity a purity of motive. Eating meat from crocodile to kangaroo, from pig to porcupine, won't affect that. Those who got stuck on regulations about food and never progressed to the real point are quite literally missing the heart of the matter. By focusing on outward purity, they are avoiding the much deeper challenge of the gospel, the challenge to the human heart. Okay, now let's talk about the Syrophoenician woman's faith. Syrophoenician woman is a woman from um, a Greek place, so that's why it's that funky name, in case you were wondering. So let's go ahead and read that. This is verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of his daughter, out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. I've heard this passage preached on a few times in my life, and I have heard lectures about it before in classes. 
Many scholars have this opinion that when this woman approaches Jesus and asks him to exercise the demon from her daughter, that his reply is A, harsh and quick, and her response is feminist and witty. B, that Jesus' response is actually metaphorical. Or C, Jesus' response is a test. And let me break these down to you. For you. <laughs> let me just break them down. A, I don't think that it's likely that... Um, Jesus was being harsh and quick and that her response was feminist and witty because the context of what's happening, and I'm sorry, I just don't see any human putting Jesus in his place. That is a gross misunderstanding of his character and the first century culture. So let's move on to B. B is a popular belief among scholars, um, and it's that Jesus' response to the Gentile woman, which, by the way, is super emphasized greatly in the Greek um, text, that she was a Gentile. They believe that it's metaphorical, that the children are representing the Jews and the dogs represent the Gentiles. They would say Jesus' ministry was first to the Jews and therefore his focus was on making sure that quote-unquote children ate first, etc. You get the point. The problem here is rooted in the fact that this concept is deeply theological. It's not likely that this woman would have grasped this concept, all things considered, and it's not likely that she would have responded in the way that she did. I believe C makes the most sense. William Lane explains it this way. Jesus' apparent refusal to help in a situation of clear need conveys an impression of harshness and insensitivity. Sorry, His reluctance to act immediately on the woman's behalf may be due to the fact that in the Hellenistic world, which means the Greek culture, in the first century, there were many quote-unquote miracle workers who attracted popular followings. In Galilee, Jesus had been regarded as one of these divine men, and the crowds had thronged him for his benefactions. The power of God, however, is properly released not in a context of superstition and magic, but in response to faith. Jesus therefore put before the woman an an enigmatic statement to test her faith. The irony of comparison is intended to invite a renewed appeal. The woman clearly understands this and did not hesitate before the apparent obstacle before her. She felt no insult in the comparison between children of the household and the pet dogs. Instead, she neatly turned it to her advantage. The crumbs dropped by the children, after all, and intended for the dogs. Jesus' comparison is not rejected, but carried one step further, which modifies the entire scene. If the dogs eat the crumbs under the table, they are fed at the same time as the children and do not have to wait, as implied by the affirmation in verse 27. Indeed, let the children be fed, but allow the dogs to enjoy the crumbs. There does not have to be an interruption of the meal, for what she requests is not the whole loaf, but a single crumb. The acceptance of the comparison, the clever reply, and the profound respect for Jesus in her address show that her confidence in his power and goodwill has not been shaken. Now, let's finish up chapter 7, shall we? This is talking about Jesus healing a deaf man. I'm really excited about this. Some fun, interesting facts. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heavens, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphsa, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The story of the mute slash deaf man is only recorded in the Gospel of Mark, and I am so glad he included it, because I'm telling you, there are so many good nuggets here. First of all, <laughs> William Lane said the request for the laying on of hands, this is interesting. The request, request for the laying on of hands indicates the presence of Jews or of Gentiles who were familiar with the Jewish practice in connection and blessing and healing. The great surprise exhibited by the people when the afflicted man spoke clearly suggests that they had not expected healing, but had brought the man to Jesus for his blessing. Isn't that amazing? Then the Greek word that Mark used here um, for uh, healing, I believe, is, <laughs> I'm going to butcher this, magalalos. And I'm going to butcher that, but you know what? Nobody really knows what Koine Greek sounds like, so maybe I said it right. <laughs> It is rare. This word is rare, and it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It does, however, occur in the Septuagint. And just so you guys know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and sometimes it's referred to as the LXX, okay? In Isaiah 35.6, um, that's where you find it, and this is not a coincidence. Mark is deliberately alluding to the prophetic passage in Isaiah to claim Jesus as Messiah. And then finally, you have... Okay, wait. I want to say one more thing before I get to this final thing, because this is such an interesting thing. Jesus uses his saliva to heal this man, okay? He does the same thing in, um, I think, Bethsaida. Is that where it was, where he healed the blind man? He used his saliva. Okay, why? Well, there's a lot of theories behind it, but I'm going to tell you something. Listen to this. Where is your saliva? Where does it come from? It comes from your mouth. Jesus is the mouth of God. And do you know what's beautiful about the mouth of God? When it speaks, things are created and recreated. It's a new creation. So it's symbolic for a new creation. You are now going to be able to hear. You are now going to be able to talk. I just think that's really, really cool. And I'm going to tell you one last thing. Finally, have you ever wondered why Jesus always wants people to keep his healings hush-hush? I have heard many answers to the question, but honestly, none of them really satisfied me. Until now. Actually, that's not true. My husband's a pastor, and he said a couple of things that satisfied me, but I might as well give him credit, too. So, thank you, Pastor Matt. R.T. France said that secrecy here... Um, as early in the gospel, may result from the danger of misdirected messianic enthusiasm. But in any case, Jesus does not seem to have set out to be known primarily as a healer and the desire to remain unnoticed. Listen, the Jews really wanted the Messiah to come because they expected the Messiah to overthrow the Romans, okay? You can even see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there. He's being arrested by the Roman soldiers. Peter literally pulls out a knife and chops off a guy's ear because he's ready to fight. The Messiah is here. The time has come. It's time to fight Rome. But they were completely misunderstanding the whole point of the Messiah. The point of the Messiah was not to overthrow Roman rule. The point of the Messiah was to read them out of captivity into the promised land just like Moses did with the Israelites. But the promised land this time is freedom through Christ, 
salvation, and now they get to spend eternity with God, right? They completely missed that point. So the fact that he did not want so much messianic enthusiasm, he didn't want to um, create this rise and this revolt where Jews got excited and expected this Messiah to come overthrow Rome, which they did anyway, that happened, but that's why he wanted to keep it hush-hush. So what's the application of all of this chapter? (laughs) One, I was listening to a lecture by Doug Wilson the other day. Okay. My husband's working on his doctorate and I try to listen when he studies, try to learn what he's learning. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said that belonging to a good church with good theology does not make you a good Christian. And what he means is the same thing that Jesus is telling the Pharisees at the beginning of this chapter. Traditions and purity and good things are not good if you are not implementing them, especially for the glory of God. Are you learning and talking things, taking things in and talking about things, but not living it out? That's a direct violation of scripture, one I am absolutely guilty of. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is a command. What they're doing is not listening to the word. They're adding to the word and listening to the traditions of the um, elders of the Jewish party, but they're not actually following what scripture says. And that's the problem. Make sure you are implementing the things that you're learning and studying. Number two, Jesus came for all. The Jew, the Gentile, male, the female, the slave, the master, all of us. And number three, Jesus is not just a healer or a genie. He is so much more. And don't forget, he is your king. He is your Messiah. He is your savior. And he is your friend. Okay, guys, that's all I got for you today. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And please check us out at www.thebowmovement.com. Remember, ladies, go out and be bold.